Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. Today we're looking at stress in the city, where workers report high levels of anxiety and often psychological breakdown can creep up without warning. Natalie Whittle discusses how to spot the signs and what can be done to help with William Shanahan, consultant psychiatrist, and Matthew Green, a writer with a focus on mental health. We know the city is a place in which competition thrives and long working hours are the norm. William, what kinds of problems does this cause in patients do you see in your clinic? A wide variety of problems depending on the type of person we're dealing with. Sometimes something as simple as a generalised anxiety, worry about anything, work, money, family, and sometimes something as deep as a very serious depressive illness. Would you say that the triggers are going to inevitably cause problems? Do you think it would be inhuman to be able to tolerate these kinds of pressures in the city? Well, I think it depends on the sort of person you're dealing with. Some people seem cut out for high-pressurised work and sail through it and you never hear of them becoming depressed or anxious. And other people don't survive. Why? We wait to find out, really, because it takes some time to work out why one person is able to cope with pressure and one person is not. Maybe it's genetics, maybe it's something they didn't expect, maybe it's the fact that they come from a different country. Quite often we see people who are not used to the British system and who come over expecting one thing and get dealt another. And there's a kind of a sense in the city that if you've made a mistake and you're seen to be vulnerable, that somehow or other you are singled out for persecution later. And that can cause a lot of anxiety in people who then worry about their jobs, their position, etc. Is it also true that in the city you might be attracted to this pressurised environment because you are somebody who thrives on competition itself and so to have your own vulnerability sort of revealed to you is quite a devastating moment in your life? Yes, but I think what you will find people saying is that they didn't expect what happened to happen. They were going along just fine, and then one day in the supermarket, they have a sudden sense of often they're going to have a heart attack and die. It's something as serious as that. And because they had no previous notion of what a panic attack was or mental illness was or is, they are completely thrown by it. And it takes some time for us to get across to them that this is not a heart attack. It's not physical. It's in fact a conversion taking place in their bodies where what they're actually worried about is converting itself into a physical symptom. Why does that happen? Probably because people are so alien to the concept of mental illness. They just don't consider themselves to be that sort of person. And if they had been, if they had depression as a youngster or as a young person, they are more attuned to it. But so many people are not attuned to it. And who are those people going to be? We can't be certain. It affects anybody. If you may remember about 10 years ago, actually, we in the Nightingale invented a syndrome called the square mile syndrome, which we said was about people working in the square mile who were worried about the then financial crisis. But in fact, that's continued because the crisis doesn't go away. It's not really about money. It's about personal security, attitudes, interpersonal relationships and just a sense of self. And what drives that is your personality, your genetic makeup and really your supportive network in your own community. So we think of the square mile as quite a, a masculine place. Is this skewed towards men? Is it women also who are oh, bringing problems to your clinic? In a place where there are more men, you'll get pro rata, more people turning up who happen to be male. But no, this is not at all a male-only condition. We have a lot of female patients who are going through exactly the same things as their male colleagues. And you talked about a psychosomatic expression of mental health conditions being 
uh, first flag for something being wrong. That sort of speaks of secrecy in delaying seeking help, perhaps. And, you know, sometimes it takes a tragedy like the suicide of Zurich Chief Executive Martin Sen, I think in 2015, to reveal the extent of someone's suffering. Matthew, what's your view of that as something pernicious in this bigger picture? It's a tragedy that in the year 2019, we're still thinking and talking about mental health problems as if we were effectively living in Victorian times. There's still this enormous amount of shame and stigma attached to suffering from depression, as I've done, anxiety, addiction. And often, of course, these are conditions that are driven by an underlying unresolved trauma. It's time that we start to understand that very often when we're suffering from emotional pain, whether it's being expressed physically, as William was just saying, it's because a part of us is rebelling. It's saying, hang on, you're not living your life in alignment with your true values, with who you really are. And if you're stuck in a job in the city, which some part of you thinks is giving you security and status and meaning, really, have you ever asked yourself the question, is it really? Is it really where you're supposed to be? And maybe the news that's going to be tough for a lot of people to hear is if they're suffering in their job, it's time to think about doing something different. It's a big step, though, isn't it, to say this on some level is wrong, because I think there's an intermediary phase that people might expect in which chaos rules, because you have to remake your life. Well, that's right. And that's why I think it's so important for us to have a new kind of conversation about mental health, because... With the right support and a little bit of wisdom, it doesn't have to be a breakdown, a sense that everything's fallen apart, you failed, that you're weak, that you've somehow let yourself down. No, it's actually a knock at the door saying it's time to change your life. It's time to be living differently. It's time to be tuning in to a deeper dimension of yourself that maybe you've never bothered to listen to in the 25 years you've been desperately climbing up the ladder. And I wrote a story for the FT Weekend a few months ago about new approaches to treating trauma. And I had emails from very senior people in financial organizations who were absolutely craving some straight talk about this kind of stuff because there's so much stigma attached that people aren't given the opportunity to understand what these conditions really are. It's a kind of rebellion from the soul that's saying we need to we need to kind of get back in alignment with our mission here we're not going down the right track and it's time to change and to help these people we need to have that conversation like we're doing now and get the right kind of support in place to make that chaotic transition that you talked about as smooth as possible but you know what sometimes chaos is good because if you carry on charging up that ladder and don't listen to what your body and your mind is telling you, you're going to have a much bigger crash at the end of it than if you accept that you have a problem that you need to look at and do the work on yourself that you need to really thrive in a real sense, in a really authentic sense. You mentioned there that you had a period where you suffered from depression. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, well, I've had depression on and off every five or six years throughout the course of my adult life. And actually one episode was while I was working at the Financial Times. And I must say, credit to the FT, I was treated with a great deal of kindness and compassion. And I had to take 10 weeks off work. And there's a lot of people working in the city, I suspect you'd be horrified by the idea of taking 10 weeks off work with depression. But if you've got a serious physical illness, 
if you've had a nasty car accident or if you've got cancer, you'll take that time off. And it's no different. In fact, often, if our distress is manifesting at the kind of mental, emotional level, it's better to treat it there before it starts manifesting in a physical form years later, which can be a lot harder to deal with. So, yeah, I've been very lucky in that I've really learned to embrace my experience and the enormous teachings it had to give me that's really allowed me to, I think, feel a lot happier as a baseline as a result. But if I push that depression away, if I hadn't wanted to deal with it, if I'd stuffed it down or essentially ran to an addiction to hide from it, or even if I'd stayed on antidepressants indefinitely, I don't know whether I'd have been able to do that work on myself, which is sometimes really tough. There's no doubt about it. But ultimately, it's put me in a much stronger position to, I think, help other people who might occasionally come to me and say, hang on, I'm feeling a bit wobbly. William, do you think Matthew's assessment was accurate there that a city worker might be horrified at the idea of first admitting weakness and second then taking 10 weeks off. Absolutely. But I think it raises a far more important point, the importance of a proper diagnosis. Because without a diagnosis, you can't formulate a treatment plan. And what these people need, such as Matthew and people after him, is an understanding set of employers who will allow you to get the help you need from appropriate people. You can't just go filling out tick boxes in magazines and hope that that's going to give you an answer. You need to be directed to the right people for the right amount of time. And if that means several months off, well, so be it. And a lot of people, of course, forget that if you broke your hip on the road on the way into work, you'd be six months in traction and some several having physiotherapy and doing all sorts of things which people wouldn't think twice about. But when it comes to mental illness, there's a real shock about taking two weeks off work when, in fact, you're nowhere near recovered after two weeks if you've had a shock of something like a depressive illness, which may be with you for a very, very long time. So I totally agree that people are surprised, but need to get over that surprise. It's about re-education and understanding and taking away the dread word of stigma, which I'm afraid comes up in everything we deal with through sexuality, through depression, through all what people would call the uncool conditions. So just to generalise some of the confidences that your patients might make to you, what's your impression of how enlightened the banks, the law firms are towards these sorts of issues? It's very variable. Some companies have very good occupational health departments and very enlightened doctors and nurses and therapists within those departments, and some do not. It's not so much often the companies themselves who believe and try to follow fairly ethical standards. It's co-workers, very often, who are not sympathetic, who are quite ignorant, actually, about mental illness and who make the person who's suffering's life really quite difficult because on the floor, at office level, they're made to feel that they're swinging the lead, that they're not doing a good day's work and they must turn up whether they can't crawl out of bed in the morning because they're so down and so indeed suicidal sometimes that these people get driven to use drugs to take things to try to push them through which then of course stab them in the back and make the problems even worse. The people that you're talking about on the office floor as it were who don't understand very often are people who are stuffing down their own problems because they're so terrified of that conversation because it might mean they have to look in the mirror and again it's okay to look in the mirror. It's really scary at first and really painful and you're going to have to push through a lot of stuff that you've not wanted to look at, probably right back to childhood. But when you start to unpack that in a safe and supported way, you can really have an entirely different way of living life that's far more rewarding than investing your entire identity in your business card. I think that issue of the complex politics that are enacted on the working floor That is, I think, something that's actually not talked about enough because that can be the place where you actually need to feel supported and that may often be absent. That's right. And I think there's a real 
value in peer-to-peer support as well. There's some companies now, including Reuters, where I've been doing some work, where there is a structured system where people in each team or in different parts of the newsroom are given training of how to watch out for colleagues who might be in distress and ways to approach them. And I experienced this myself. I internalized that stigma for a long time before I was able to talk about it and kind of embrace it and own it. Now I love talking about it. But, you know, when you're in the pit of it, it's like a living hell. And you feel like you're cut off behind glass, that no one will understand. If you speak to them, they will judge you, that you will lose your position of respect in the organization. So having some sort of peer-to-peer support where it might be a colleague who's sort of on a level with you or even sort of below you in quotes, who's able to have a chat with you over a coffee. I think there's a real possible value in that as well. It's actually a system that was pioneered by the military in the mid 90s. So ironically, I think the corporate sector in the city has got a lot to learn actually from the British army and how it's managed to fight stigma. William, how can people help themselves? I mean, we know there's an increasing body of evidence that Simple things like exercise can help. What's your advice to people on how they can help? At this point, I think they have to get past the view that because they have shown some vulnerability and a sense that they are bleeding in public, that somehow the sharks are going to come out and swallow them alive. They have to get beyond that and believe that there is a better place where they can find some sort of help, some sort of solace and open up about it. And probably the first person to talk to is your general practitioner, actually. Keep it simple. There's no need to get too complicated about it and go looking for gurus and psychiatrists and people straight off the bat. You might just get a few minutes, half an hour, a quarter of an hour with somebody. Might be enough. And sometimes that's all it takes. For the worried well, that's all it takes. If you're more seriously ill, obviously I get back to my point. You need a proper assessment and then you need treatment. There's no point in self-medicating. What I say to people is don't, don't indulge in drugs. Don't indulge in stuff that you think might help because all you'll do is make yourself worse. And what percentage of your patients do you think find the cure through an exit from the city? Uh, that's very difficult to say because, I mean, again, going back to Matthew's point, are they in the right job in the first place? Because often people are following parents' views and, and university views that they're cut out for this sort of work. And then they arrive in, at a point where they find out that, in fact, it wasn't what they wanted to do ever. And they would rather be climbing mountains or you know, potholing or something. But people have to pay bills as well. And often it's not as easy as that if you have small children or you have people relying on you. You have to keep going. And that's where it gets really difficult. But the percentage of people, I suppose, actually not very many, maybe 10, 20 percent of people change tack from our perspective. Others just find better ways to work. And I think it's worth remembering that if you have a disability, you cannot be discriminated against. And there is an important discrimination act in law which prevents people from discriminating against you. And you have to be given an opportunity to work in a better environment, flexible working, maybe even some working from home. People have to make allowances for your condition. So you have support. It isn't just you on your own against the world. And Matthew, you've been researching for the Life and Arts Mind specials some interesting developments in alternative treatments for depression. Can you tell us a bit about what you've discovered? Well, that's right. I'm fascinated by the psychedelic renaissance, which is essentially a kind of fluorescence of research into the potential therapeutic application of drugs that have mostly been banned for a long time, particularly MDMA and psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. But of course, LSD was used therapeutically to treat addictions in the 60s. Some people embraced plant medicines like ayahuasca. Now, I'm shuffling in my seat, sitting next to an eminent psychiatrist who's looking at me very quizzically here. But I should stress that I think 
two things. One is obviously these substances must always be used in a therapeutic context. They shouldn't just be taken in any kind of environment. And to that end, I went on an experience weekend run by the UK Psychedelic Society in the Netherlands, where it's perfectly legal to take magic truffles, as they're called. So they contain psilocybin, which is the substance which the FDA in the US has just awarded breakthrough therapy status as a treatment for depression. So I wanted to see what does this substance do? Does it live up to the hype? Did it work? Well, (laughs) it's one of those experiences that is literally ineffable. That's, in a sense, definition of these experiences. If you are listening, uh, it's not ineffable. It's a good thousand words. Of... Well, that, that's true, actually. I, I did my best. A very interesting analysis coming but, up in this week's edition. But yeah, it, it does. In my experience, it took me into a totally different, I would say, majestic state of consciousness where I was able to look at dilemmas in my life with an absolute clarity that I think would have taken a very long time to reach through sort of conventional therapy. I looked at my relationship with my mother. I realized that I wasn't, well, I wasn't, frankly, giving her enough support. You know, she's been ill for a long time. And I felt really moved by this experience to really show up for my parents. And that's something I took home and began to put into practice immediately. Now, I think that the key point about psychedelic therapy is that the idea is to allow the patient to confront the very root of their symptoms, whether they're trauma symptoms, depression or anxiety or addiction. A lot of conventional psychiatric medication is taken over the long term. It's essentially palliative. It's trimming the branches. Whereas psychedelic therapy aims to get to the root of the problem. And we might actually dare to use the cure word. William, what is your view? I mean, perhaps I did detect a look of scepticism on your face also. I think we should be very careful, that's all. It's very easy to have an e-jerk response of no, no, no. And I don't think we should do that in the profession anymore. But I think we need to remember that opiates were thought to be helpful and weren't. Freud thought cocaine would get him off opiates and all it did was give him more problems than he started out with. So we've often used unusual stimulants or psychedelic drugs to try to help one condition and then found that they themselves brought more trouble than we could deal with. And I have seen problems, particularly with ayahuasca and with some of those other stimulant drugs and particularly with MDMA where people will go psychotic on this drug. So for some people it'll work and for some people it won't. But does that mean we should close the door on it? Of course not. I think we need proper constructed research to actually get the answer. Ketamine has been researched for some time now, for example, for depression. And now I know psilocybin, there is an interest in it. Let's have a look at what people say. And let's not be blind to the fact that if this works, great. It's another drug on the smorgasbord of treatment. Thank you very much to William Shanahan and to Matthew Green for joining us today. This weekend's edition of Life and Arts is entirely devoted to all aspects of the mind, from artificial intelligence to animal intelligence and from mental health pressures to an analysis of why President Trump lies. So please take a look and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. And if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in the podcast today, we'll also put some links to organisations that might be able to help in the show notes too. That was Natalie Whittle. Executive Editor of Life and Arts, talking to William Shanahan, Consultant Psychiatrist and Medical Director of the Private Nightingale Hospital in London, and Matthew Green, former FT journalist and now writer with a focus on mental health. We'll be back with another news feature next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. Hold up. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.